What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you're not rocking a Mystery Ranch Fireline backpack, well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, your back probably hurts like a lot. But aside from the most well-built, the most badass, and the most comfortable Fireline packs out there, they make a ton of other stuff. But it's up to you to go check them out. So go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out all of their load-bearing essentials. And hell, while you're at it, might as well check out the Backbone series. And if you guys don't know what that is, well, you're in for a little bit of a treat. So the Backbone series is a series of stories about wildland firefighting from you folks directly out there on the front lines of the fire line. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, I just want to give a show, uh, a special shout out to Mystery Ranch because they've also opened up the Backbone Scholarship Series. So if you got a compelling story or something epic to say, uh, shed some light on what goes on on the fire line, well, head over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone Series. Submit your story. And if you're chosen, well, bang, there you go. You get a $1,000 scholarship. It's pretty cool. It's uh, exclusively available for the men and women that go above and beyond in the off season. Uh, you and I know that, well, classes aren't cheap. Uh, medical training isn't cheap. None of it's cheap. And you got to keep, uh, keep it going. So what a better way to do it than through a scholarship. So while you're at it, go over there, check it out, submit your story, www.mysteryranch.com. Check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that is none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Sub Burke, you're doing some amazing work over there. Keep it up. But aside from kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they make a ton of other stuff. They make a, a full line of apparel to help represent that wildland firefighting culture. It's pretty awesome. And they make all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. So if you guys are uh, in the need some in the need for some kick-ass tools, coffee or apparel, go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. And while you're at it, go over there and check out the little section that says T-A-P-P-S. And that stands for the Anchor Point Podcast. Yeah, it's going to be awesome because they support Anchor Point Podcast by slinging our merch. So if you want to get your hands on one of those Band of Brothers tees or one of those uh, Fire Fiend tees, I highly suggest you go over there and check it out. Once again, that is www.hotshotbrewing.com. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at The Ass Movement. And if you guys don't know what The Ass Movement is, well, it's an acronym and it stands for the Anti-Service Shitting Movement. It is the finest in poo-bearing propaganda. Hell, even uh, Steve Rinella himself said that surface shitters are akin to tweakers or something along the lines. I'm paraphrasing, but it's a problem that needs to stop. So if you want to uh, help spread the word about burying your turds, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and check this out. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off site-wide on their order. Ooh, how do you do that? Well, it's easy. Go over to that website, www.thefirewild.com. Check out the ass movement, add some stuff to your cart, and at the checkout, enter the code ANCHORPOINTASS10 for 10% off your entire purchase. Once again, if you want the best in poo-bearing propaganda, go over to the ass movement and check it out. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And if you guys don't know what that is, well, I highly, highly suggest going over there and checking it out over at www. 
wildfireexperience.org because it is a humongous and ever-growing pretty much monthly, daily. I don't even know at this point, but there's a hell of a lot of stories over there. But it is a digital archive of stories about wildland firefighting dating all the way back to the 1940s. It is freaking awesome. Not only that, but Bethany also has a scholarship opportunity out there for you folks in the field. So if you are a blogger, a writer, a photographer, a cinematographer, anybody who's telling the story of wildland fire, go over to www.wildfireexperience and check out the Smoky Generation grants. It's freaking awesome. Yeah. Opportunities there for you. So go over there. Once again, www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. Views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Hope everybody's doing well. It is dirty August and it keeps getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. So I hope everybody's doing well. And if you uh, happen to get off the line for a couple of days, maybe three days, if you're lucky, uh, well, I would do some, uh, you do yourself some favors and maybe set up an appointment with a clinician. Reason being is because you can uh, establish that relationship and that rapport with them for when uh, the off season hits and you're always going to be set up. So doing yourself some favors. But yeah, with that being said, uh, definitely stay safe out there and uh, especially pay attention to this episode because there's some tasty little tidbits and uh, we're going to be talking about heat injuries, which it is August. It's hotter than hell out there. We're going to be talking about rhabdo and we're going to be talking about what a EMS medical director does. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Dr. Timothy Durkin. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend, Timothy Durkin. Mr. Durkin, what's going on, what's going on man? How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Uh, great to be here. Excited to talk about some medical stuff. And I think you wanted to talk about rhabdo. It's a fun topic. Yeah. The, and, uh, the capital. Yeah, power. I'm excited. So yeah, we're going to get down to it. Nice. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What's, uh, what's the story behind Mr. Timothy here? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I am a physician. I am board certified in both emergency and sports medicine, which is a little bit uncommon. There's only a little bit more than 200 of us nationally that are boarded in both those specialties. And then I've got a pretty strong interest in um, uh, backcountry and wilderness medicine and rescue medicine and things like that. So, um, which is kind of how you and I got kind of, uh, in touch and, and so forth. 
um, because that interest has led me to get involved as um, as local medical director for the San Juan National Forest and some of the firefighting and EMS activities that happen on the forest. Um, among uh, I guess that's a, one of five other jobs that I have. So uh, yeah, anyway, so a lot of different interests, but um, but really like to talk about things that are kind of at the intersection of emergency and critical care and sports medicine and outdoor and wilderness medicine and and that you know have some direct uh, and then kind of see what we can do to boil it down that's directly applicable to to folks actually doing work outside so nice so it's probably reasonable to assume that you are an avid outdoorsman considering your passion in uh austere and remote medicine yeah, for sure. Uh, we, my wife and I moved from Albuquerque to Southwest Colorado in 2015. And, uh, and so we're super fortunate to live here. And um, I think my favorite probably thing to do is, is ski tour and ski in the backcountry. But, uh, but we, um, my wife's a big mountain biker. So I try to, you know, keep up with her and that's kind of a struggle because she's better than I am. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing to live in Southwest Colorado and, you know, get out on the water, go hiking, all the things. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah, for sure. We love it. Nice. It's a beautiful place down there in uh, Southwest Colorado. And you, um, are you out of, uh, the, what is that? So San Juan. So what is that town down there? Uh, 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 I can't remember it. It's right on the border of New Mexico and uh, Durango. Durango, yes, yeah. it was like so right I, on my tip yeah. Of so my I live, tongue. I'm I live sorry. in Durango, and so yeah, the Columbine District is based here in Durango, and then they have some facilities in Bayfield, and then we have the Pagosa District over in Pagosa, and then the, the Dolores District, which is kind of up, kind of half between Dolores and uh, and Cortez, in there. Nice, right on. So, life of a medical director. Now, you, you operate a interagency medical direction for the EMS program for wildland fire, essentially. So what, how the, how the heck do you get into that? What is like life in the, what is life like in the day of a medical director? Yeah, for sure. So there, there's a couple layers to that. So, um, so how I got plugged in with the San Juan, um, I've been super involved with a couple of the search and rescue teams here locally and there were a couple of folks that were involved with both um, the fire program on the forest and uh, and then also with um, at least, you know, tangentially involved with search and rescue. And uh, and so kind of was aware of kind of some of the stuff I've been doing with the search and rescue team and things like that. So um, they the, I'm actually the first medical director that the San Juan has ever had. Um, so, so they, you know, have been, I guess, kind of wanting or, you know, so I've heard, but, um, yeah, so I'm the first. And so, um, basically they, they asked me to do it and, uh, and I said, yes. So, so, so as a medical director, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think my role is basically to support the EMS professionals that are out caring for patients. And that's, has kind of a unique twist on it with the forest service. Um, and so first off, you know, I just have to say like, I'm not, and I obviously you have the disclaimer at the start of the podcast, but my other, my other day job is also a federal employment gig. And I'm, I'm probably like the least experienced and newest person as far as medical directors in the interagency EMS program. So, you know, um, I'll just kind of 
caveat what I say with that, that this is not like official whatever. But um, so the the way the program is structured with some of the smaller EMS programs at the forest, because, you know, there's, you know, we roughly have about 15 EMTs, give or take, uh, on the San Juan. And then, um, you know, all, you know, to pretty much everybody is affiliated with the fire program. And, and then we have one paramedic who's a seasonal hire. Um, and, and so, you know, I, kind of my role is basically just to support them. And so that kind of comes into a couple of different things. So, um, one is, um, training and, and kind of compliance stuff and, uh, making sure that, you know, particularly as folks deploy on the fires or move around or aren't on federal land that we're, um, complying, you know, with whatever it is that we need to do. Uh, and then um, supporting them in terms of training and, you know, those kind of resources. And then we've also just, you know, with with actually having some programmatic um, direction uh, around the forest that's allowed us to really kind of move towards some standardization of equipment and making sure that everybody's got the right equipment and it's, you know, it's been checked, um, you know, relatively periodically that things, you know, cause you, uh, fire apparatus gets out in the heat and there's a lot of medical gear that, you know, if you just leave it in a compartment on a piece of apparatus over time, it's just going to degrade. Oh, yeah. And so, um, so just making sure that, you know, folks have the physical tools to, to do their job and then trying to support with, um, with some training and then, you know, towards the end of the season, kind of looking back at, you know, incidents and charts and, you know, where, where are there opportunities for improvement or does that lead us to say like, Hey, this is a great topic that we can train on and things like that. But I mean, it, you know, so that's kind of the kind of nuts and bolts of what a medical director does. Um, and then with that is, you know, or kind of the whole reason you would have a physician medical director is to make sure that, you know, if you took an EMT class, five, 10 or more years ago, or, you know, two weeks ago, whatever, maybe some of the things that you were taught are not current with modern medical science. And mm -hmm. so trying to provide, um, um, that oversight to make sure that what we're doing medically is correct with what we know to be the best things for the patient in 2021. So you're, and you're I'm best trying to carry that forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like your no, you're, based you're fine, uh, was, medicines yeah. that are most current and up to date. It's like the age old uh, question about the tourniquet, the great, great tourniquet debate. Right. So it's clarifying things like that and informing your uh, EMTs, AMTs and your paramedics out in the field who are in these conditions, the correct way and the most up to date uh, protocols. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, and then kind of interfacing with, you know, what's going on with the national program. And, and again, I'm super green to all of it, uh, but everybody I've worked with on, you know, as far as other medical directors or some of the um, admin folks at, you know, at the national level with the program, um, super, super nice people, very, you know, very concerned about making sure that we're doing the right thing, that we're getting people the right resources and and just very focused on progress and improvement. So it's, it's been a good thing to be involved in. It's exciting. 
Nice. Yeah. You mentioned something pretty important about having the right equipment, uh, especially out there in the field, especially the conditions that we work in. That's like super important because not only do you have to have the right equipment, but it has to be standardized and in placement kind of almost. So like it's well marked enough in these uh, apparatus, these fire apparatus to where everybody knows where it is because the EMT may not necessarily be the closest one to the apparatus. So that's important stuff. Yeah, uh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Now, so medical direction as far as like protocols. Um, do you guys have anything special in your neck of the woods as far as advanced protocols or expanded scope or anything like that? So the way that the interagency program and interagency in this case being um, the Forest Service is kind of dovetailed in with the National Park Service uh, is basically right now using the, um, what is it, the FM54, I believe it is. It's the NPS protocols. They're a few years old. Um, the physicians in the program are actively working to revise those programs, or excuse me, revise the protocols. So, um, you know, um, so as far as like anything special that we're doing in the San Juan that's like different from the national protocols, with me kind of coming on board just right at the beginning of fire season and you know what I learned really quickly not not having a strong background in wildland fire is trying to make some major programmatic movement in mid to late March um, is is kind of a non-starter. And so um, you know, because my um, Chris, my main program coordinator, he's on the hot shots, you know, they they were on their first deployment, like third or fourth week in March. So, um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of making, you know, I think my main goal for this year was to, um, make sure we had decent gear for everybody to get started with. And then, you know, kind of, we're sort of strategizing, if that's a word for the fall, kind of trying to, you know, get set for some training and things like that, at least for the folks that are not, you know, not going to be seasonal, that'll be around this fall. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So just trying to do it. You know, the other thing is, you know, for the smaller programs, you know, like a large national park that has, you know, many patient encounters and they might have like a couple of ambulances and, you know, full-time paramedics and things like that. The, those medical director positions are, are paid. They're a federal contract. Uh, but for, you know, a smaller effort, like what we have in the San Juans for, you know, probably, you know, less than a couple dozen patient, you know, documented patient encounters, over a season um, and a small number of personnel, none of whom EMS is really their, you know, front and center, the only thing they do, um, then then actually I'm a volunteer. I'm actually a public lands volunteer. And then they're kind enough to, um, you know, I get I get kind of an honorarium when I come over and do training and things like that. Um, which, you know, for the amount of extent of effort is, is okay. You know, I'd love to be able to do more, but, you know, like I said, I have, you know, four other jobs. So, um, so, you know, um, you kind of, kind of do what you can with the, within the constraints of the resources that exist. Um, you know, but that, I think that segues nicely into, you know, some of the stuff I've, I've heard you talk about both on Instagram or some of the other podcasts is, you know, some of the greater conversation around, you know, compensation and looking at, you know, what is appropriate for the effort and the dedication and the technical skills um, that are required of our wildland firefighters 
And so, you know, I think one thing that should be part of that conversation is, is the firefighters who are the dual role EMTs and making sure that they're getting, you know, some incentive, that they're getting either a differential or that they're getting, you know, a training allowance. Um, Cause right now that's kind of a hit or miss issue, forest to forest. You know, we've, we've had really, um, you know, supportive leadership on San Juan for the, for the first year to give us a nice EMS budget to kind of get things up and running. Um, you know, and there's some things I'd like to do with training and having some more resources for that. But, you know, as, as you likely know, you know, it's an investment of both time and money. You know, you're probably out at least 2,500 bucks to go get your EMT. And then, um, you know, if your employer isn't, um, supporting you to get your mandatory con ed you need every year, and uh and providing some incentive either some greater career path or some differential or something like that it gets really hard to maintain those you know those potential credentials so i think you know if you know and i appreciate you giving me kind of a platform to advocate for for the emts not just here in colorado but but around the nation and just seeing if if you know as while this is on the agenda that maybe we can we can get some resources and some incentives to kind of make that make that better for folks. Oh, absolutely. And like you said it uh, right there yourself, it was said perfectly. Um, but a lot of times uh, I, I come from a very uh, fortunate background as they the district that I worked for, they offered incentives to go get your EMT basic, right? Um, my EMT advance came out of my own pocket. But like you said, it's a lot of money, you know, uh, each part of that program, whether whatever step you're in of it and in the program, whether it be basic or advanced, a lot of that money comes out of your own pocket. So yeah, we need absolutely need uh, qualified medical uh, professionals and qualified medical personnel on the line. Because at the end of the day, there's no one else out there besides us typically. And your definitive care is three, four, five hours away. So you need to have pretty dialed in EMTs and uh, medics and, or, or EMT advances all the way from your baseline medical care, your first responder, all the way up to your paramedics. And you got to have a lot of planning in place for an incident within an incident. So yeah, I would like to definitely see... Uh, some incentives, some more incentives nationwide for these folks to uh, get their EMS quals uh, going. Yeah, I think I think, and as you've touched on, I mean, there's there's, um, you know, most of the mandate for you know, unlike the Park Service that has a mandate to go out and help the public as they get into misadventure in our national parks, um, you know, the Forest Service does not really have a mandate to go out and assist the public. Um, which is not to say that if you get hurt in front of a park service person, a, or, excuse me, a forest service person, they're clearly going to, you know, do, do what they can for you, but they don't, they don't, you know, that's, that's the volunteer search and rescue team here that goes out if you have a misadventure in the, in the San Juan generally as a member of the public. But, but it kind of speaks to, you know, now the, a lot of the EMTs and fire, you know, some of them will work ski patrol in the winter and get some patient care exposure in that realm. But um, I think a small, you know, and, and it seems to be kind of similar to what I've heard from from other areas is a lot of the EMTs working in fire don't have a lot of high volume EMS experience. And so I think, again, that comes back to that need for investment in training, investment in simulation, 
investment in scenarios and things like that. Um, that it's, you know, and, and I think you've, you've talked about this as well. It's just, it's not just, you know, okay, I have this card from the registry in my park at, I'm good to go. There's also like, do I have the physical tools to be able to provide some meaningful intervention? And then, you know, all these skills, all this knowledge is highly perishable. And so just making sure that, that there's that, you know, investment in current skills and things like that, um, to, to make sure it all comes together. Cause as you just touched on, I mean, you know, um, we have, um, a couple of nice search and rescue teams that work in the San Juan here on the volunteer side from, you know, under the county sheriff, um, that I've been privileged to work with. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't have Nomex. We're not red carded. So if, if it's a fire operation, you know, it's, it's all like, it's all on what's there. And so, and then, you know, with that, then, you know, it's not just the medical piece as you've tied, you know, kind of touched on as well. There's also the extrication piece and, you know, you can't land a helicopter in every place possible, even when you, you know, um, it was funny, you know, I come from, you know, the star background of like, okay, this is a wilderness area. We're going to call the forest service and get permission to land the helicopter and things like that. And just, just hearing the first time I heard a phrase, we'll just cut an LZ. I was like, huh, that's an interesting perspective. And so, but even given that, I mean, there's, you know, there's places where, you know, the, the land that's underneath the trees is not flat and, you know, you, you cannot enter, you know, the helicopter can't interact with that ground. So that implies, you know, you're going to need to affect some degree of ground movement and ropes and things like that. And so that's a, you know, another area where there, I think there's, you know, training opportunities and investment opportunities and stuff like that. So, you know, I, and to see, you know, if, I mean, again, that's, that's something there's probably opportunities for standardization and investment and um, nationally. So, yeah. 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 That's and that's one of those things too, to touch on is like what I meant by, you know, have a, a plan, have a system of redundancy with your planning for when an incident within an incident happens. Uh, because like you said, I mean, we can't just land a helicopter everywhere. We are beholden to the weather conditions. Uh, so if you're socked in with smoke, guess what? You're not going to get a short haul or a hoist ship in there and it's going to be a long pack out. So you absolutely need to be dialed, uh, in stabilizing your patient before you start extricating them off the hill. Cause if you don't, well, it's going to be a bad time. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. But that and uh, just like common injuries, let's let's go over some common injuries and uh, incidents that you've seen on the line. Like, what is our most common things? I would assume like your slips, trips, and falls, broken stuff. You know, uh, broken ankles, broken limbs, maybe heat injuries. Yeah, and cardiovascular. I'd want to say. Yeah, you know, so so in terms of things I've seen on the fire line, um, you know, I'm not even red carded yet. I'm hoping to test out my field day like later this year. And, you know, kind of get a little bit more out there as far as on the fire side. But, uh, you know, from talking to folks, I think we had our, you know, first prescribed burn of the season. Um, we did have a firefighter that got some, um, some second degree burns on, on that, uh, prescribed, prescribed fire. Um, that's, um, per, you know, the, the total, total surface area on those burns was, uh, thankfully very small. Um, so that person did not need to be admitted to the hospital, um, thankfully. Um, so that, that was good, but I mean, that's always a risk, you know, with, with fire for sure. And, you know, kind of, you know, when I was a, a paramedic before med school, you know, I came from like an urban, you know, fire EMS background, structural department, things like that. So, you know, that's always kind of a front and center concern, but I think, 
you know, not being able to like quote the stats off the top of my head, but I mean, yeah, you're, you're right on the slip trips and falls, the orthopedic type injuries. I mean, that's like half of it right there. And then yeah, heat and, you know, maybe not at the point of like full on heat, heat stroke, uh, but you know, some degree of like heat injury, heat exhaustion, things like that. That's definitely a, a big one. And, um, you know, definitely done some education with like the helicopter crew here and, and, you know, some of the other crews about some of that stuff. Cause I think that's another one that's ripe with misunderstanding, um, is the whole heat and heat illness thing. Um, so those are big ones. Um, and then, yeah, it was interesting to hear, um, you know, as I was kind of going around doing some meet and greet with some of the staff around the forest, hearing some stories of, you know, they happened to run into some hiker who then collapsed and had a full cardiac arrest just right where they, this crew happened to be doing some maintenance stuff. And they ended up kind of defibrillating this guy with an AED and um, absent any other resource or anything like that, the guy, you know, woke up after getting defibrillated and um, and he was actually able to walk to a to a medical helicopter, which was kind of an interesting story. So um, after a full you know, on MI, huh? Yeah. Well, wow. I mean, I you know, it sounded it sounded like you know, so so there's a there are other things besides a occlusive myocardial infarction, a heart attack that'll give you a sudden cardiac arrest. And so I would you know, if the guy wakes up and after you know after getting buzzed and stuff, you know, doesn't have crushing chest pain or things like that, you know, that he feels pretty good, then it kind of implies a primary arrhythmia and things like that. So, you know, that guy, if he woke up that quick, I mean, he should do fine. He'll probably need a defibrillator put in his chest, but, um, you know, kind of an interesting story. So, you know, the fire world is, is again, still, it's not like unheard of coming from like, you know, a, a structural and EMS kind of background, but um, the wildland side is a whole other thing. And, so I've been really grateful for, you know, like um, my coordinator and we are AD paramedic who've been really like gracious about educating and, and integrating me. So it's been good. It's been nice. good. Yeah. You're smiling at the paramedic thing is uh, the paramedic on staff there. Are they pretty salty? <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I would, that's not the adjective I would use for this person. No, he's, he's been great. He, and he's he's really um, uh, quite fitted to the role. He has a, he's got some high volume uh, EMS experience that he got after being in fire for a while, and uh, and then you know ski patrols and, and does a decent amount of patient care in the winter, and you know just kind of has a really good integration of you know both the fire and the medicine part of it. So, um, so it's, you know, um, he's, he's been a great resource for me and goes around and does a lot of education with the crews and stuff like that. So Mike, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Those, uh, paramedics though, there's a lot to learn from paramedics, especially with people with, uh, paramedics with a lot of street medicine, uh, experience. And reason why I say that is because they're great. They're like almost intuitive of just looking at a patient and knowing what's wrong with very little diagnostic tools almost. I mean, yeah, you have to do your, your differentials, of course, and you have to figure out what the hell is going on, but they're very good at like recognizing things from afar and they're even probably better at improvising with what they have as far as the tools go, at least. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it, it seems to me from what I've seen and, and the experience of others, there you know comes a point where you've seen, you know, 
in the like thousands of patients numbers in your career where you begin to assimilate information in almost like a pre-conscious type way. And, you know, I'm sure Malcolm Gladwell or someone could, could articulate this in a much more eloquent way than, than I am right now. But, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, just as like a super experienced person who's got, you know, 15, 20 years in fire can kind of look around and just kind of sniff a change in the wind and have some intuitive sense that uh, things are about to change or what's going to happen. You know, there's that, you know, at the point where you have, you know, tens of thousands of hours of experience in some field of human endeavor, you, you start to get pretty, pretty functional at it, I would say. So, and then, you know, as, as you get, you know, you pair that with more education and then you tend to get more capable. So, yeah. Oh yeah. It's a uh, pretty crazy, like, uh, especially, you know, it, like a big city EMS, like a busy EMS called, uh, area. Yeah. You get those hours and you get them quick. Um, but yeah, that years of experience definitely adds up into being a, a kick-ass paramedic. It's cool, man. It's cool to watch that process and just to learn and chat, chat with them and learn everything you can just soak everything they have in like a sponge, man. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we kind of brushed on heat injury right there. And I know there's been a lot of concentration on the topic of heat injuries lately. Uh, I know it's uh, kind of one of those moving targets as far as what to do out in the field for a heat injury. But let's break it down from your perspective. Wow. Okay. So, so I've, um, um, yeah. All right. That's fine. So, um, the main, the life threat is, is heat stroke. And so, so what is heat stroke? Heat stroke is a condition where the body's core temperature has risen to the point where you have failure of temperature regulation. And at that point, the proteins or, or just the tissue in both your brain and your liver begin to cook. And I cook, I'm not using entirely metaphorically, just like if we put a piece of meat on a grill and the, 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 tissues of that piece of meat will begin to change under the heat in a way that can't be reversed. That is what happens in the body during heat stroke. And so, so which then implies what the treatment is, which is we need to cool that person as quickly and as aggressively as we possibly can. And so, um, so with that, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the one paragraph summary. So what does a heat stroke look like? Well, it looks like brain dysfunction. So things like unsteady walking, suddenly labile mood, irritability, uh, perhaps a seizure, perhaps a collapse, um, any, any instance of brain dysfunction absent, or excuse me, brain dysfunction in the setting of heat stress and, or, some circumstance and some people, you know, there are plenty of cases of heat stroke when it wasn't super hot out. People either had some medical issue or some innate susceptibility or, uh, or they were engaged in really hard exercise. And, you know, cause you've got heat from the environment and then you have heat you generate in your body as you move. And so, um, so you got to have the radar up for it. Um, and then the other kind of diagnostic pearl is that 
only a rectal temperature is going to help you in a heat stroke situation. All the other ones are going to mislead you, give you false low numbers. Um, there was a, on one of the sports medicine podcasts, there was a great case, one of the, the docs presented of working at a marathon where a person came in who's babbling nonsense, clearly altered, um, got an oral temperature at the triage of this race medical tent and was triaged as hypothermic. And then come to find out um, when they got a rectal temp, the person was absolutely having heat stroke. And so they needed to be cooled. So, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of this, you know, you'll see these different infographics and things like that, where they'll talk about like hot, dry skin and that's all garbage. And so, um, you know, there's, there's um, the Jordan McNair case, which was a football fatality, um, you know, that was, they had a third party investigator and it well documented that his skin was, was cold and, and wet. And so, um, so you can't, really rely on those type of physical signs. Um, so, uh, yeah, heat stroke, nasty stuff. Um, and you don't have to have heat exhaustion before you can have a heat stroke. This can happen quickly if you're working very hard in the heat. Um, and then so treatment. So, and particularly you asked about how that goes in the field. So again, our objective is to cool that person as aggressively as we possibly can and as quickly as we can, because it's really, it's an area under the curve problem. So the higher their temp is for the longer period of time, the more damaged this person's body is going to be. But if we can cool these people aggressively within 30 minutes of collapse or 30 minutes of symptoms, then the survival and functional recovery rate is about as close to hundred percent as anything we have in medicine. Um, but it's a scary disease because it's one of the few things that can kill a young, healthy person really quickly. Um, so how do you affect aggressive cooling in the field? So probably a lot of older, well, you know, people that went through EMT kind of in paramedic and like the time frame I did, or even more recently, you know, kind of an old talk of, well, you want to put some cold packs in the groin or on the um, the neck and things like that. That's garbage. So, um, so the, yeah, no, no. So, um, so there was a great paper done by a guy I used to work with at my ER in Albuquerque named John Lissaway. And when he was doing his wilderness medicine fellowship at Stanford, they actually studied that issue. And so there's, there's actually better heat transfer if you use the palms and the soles, because there's actually capillaries and vessel beds and things like that there, then there are at the, the groin and the neck. But we really need to be cooling the whole body in these people because only whole body cooling will cool the person fast enough for the best outcome. Um, so, and there's, there's, you know, you'll hear these, uh, you know, people talk about like, oh, you don't want to cool them too quickly. You're going to make them sick or something like that. Garbage. You it's all BS, huh? As quickly as you can. What's that? It's all BS. Yeah. So there's just again, it's like rife with misinformation. So, um, so uh, you need to cool them as aggressively as possible, so that um, so that you know their brain and their liver won't won't be toast. Um, so how can we do this in the field? Well, the ideal, the gold standard, is a tub that we can immerse people in that's filled with ice water. And then you want to agitate that water to get kind of more movement and more cooling. And so, you know, if, if you told me, Hey, it's going to be 110 degrees and, you know, uh, Dr. Durkin come out and help us set up, you know, the medical unit at this fire, 
then I'm going to go to the agricultural store and I'm going to buy a couple Rubbermaid 100 gallon stock tanks and have a bunch of ice handy so that I can do that. And the, the 100 gallon agricultural stock tanks are great because they're deep enough. You can submerge an adult up to their neck and their, their whole body is in the water, but they're short enough that you can't like extend out to the point where you're going to your head can go underneath the water. And you could drown. So, so that is the gold standard: is the, the hundred-gallon stock tank with a bunch of ice water. Um, recognizing that is logistically challenging. So, so there's a couple other alternatives. So, kind of, and I'll move from like, you know, we just talked about the best, and now we'll we'll kind of talk about progressively less ideal options. Kind of walk it and back. So, um, What's that? I said kind of walk it back from best case scenario to worst. Yeah, worse. for sure. So yeah. so then the next thing, if you don't have the 100-gallon stock tank, is tarp cooling. And so what you do is you get yourself a big tarp and maybe four people. And if the tarp is big enough, you basically can put the person in it and a bunch of water. And again, you can imagine the tarp is kind of on a slant with the feet lower than the head because you don't want to drown the person. And you've got some ice and some water and the person in the tarp and the people on the left and the people on the right kind of take turns to kind of jostle the water around and things like that. And um, and that, that's been well described as a successful and, and effective cooling method. Um, the next kind of step as we progress towards greater austerity would be to, um, to do sheet cooling. And so this is where you have a cooler that has uh, bed sheets in it, like, you know, just, just, you know, flat sheets, either from the hospital or the thrift store or, you know, Walmart, wherever you can get them. And those are sitting folded in a cooler of ice water. And so now you take this and you, you know, and, and in all these circumstances, you're removing all this person's clothing and so forth to cool them quicker. Um, and so you uh, you put these ice water soaked sheets over the over the person, and now you have you know kind of whole body cold water, and you have some degree of evaporative cooling that occurs. And if you have you know a salvage fan, a ventilation fan, you know whatever you've got to try to increase the air movement, um, you know that one will you know obviously work better if you're dealing with lower humidities. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's certainly been used in high humidity. The military has had good success using that kind of at more remote, you know, training sites and things like that. Um, you know, they've, the military's done some really good work and research around this. Um, so if you can't do that, now you're starting to get into some difficulty where, um, where perhaps your, you know, your treatment effectiveness and your survivability is, is kind of starting to degrade. Um, as we touched on, you know, if we only have a limited amount of things we can cool and so forth, then, then the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet have much more vascular, uh, access and vascular exchange and capillaries and stuff than the, the neck and the groin and stuff like that. So, um, the, a follow or a similar study that Dr. Lissaway and the folks at Stanford did, um, was looking at the little chemical heat packs or excuse me, cold packs that mm -hmm. a lot of folks have in their, uh, medical kit that, you know, you squeeze it and then it gets a little colder and things like that. The amount of thermal transfer that can occur from one of those is pretty not enough. <laughs> so almost so negligent. There, you know, you, you really need ice in, in some quantity, um, you know, absent ice, um, you know, maybe you have an engine that has 
300 gallons of not ice water, but it's not, you know, probably not super hot water and it's probably cooler than the patient. So, you know, dousing, you know, kind of continually getting water flowing over that person um, to, to cool them. Um, that's certainly been been one way that's been, you know, um, I talked with some folks in the Austin uh, region who've had success doing that. Um, so another thing that I've thought about that I've not had a chance to play with yet, and I'm really curious to do that, is um, to see if we can use a fire shelter like a tarp um, and fill that up with water and see how, you know, if the stitching would let water leak out, it, you know, which a little bit would be fine. But, um, you know, and I know somebody's going to be like, oh, you got to save your fire shelter to, you know, to, for, for a burnover. But, you know, I would say the fire shelter exists to save the firefighter's life. And so if the firefighter has a heat stroke, they are dying. And so we should use all the tools available to save their life. Um, similarly, um, some EMS agencies have used a body bag to affect, you know, similar to a tarp cooling type situation, fill it up with ice and water and things like that. Um, so that that's also um, in the doable range. But uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of a quick overview of some heat stroke stuff. Yeah, I like the improvisation there. That's actually a pretty good idea. I've never, I don't know if a, a, a fire shelter is waterproof or not. Uh, yeah, I, I would, you know, and if, if somebody has one that's like, you know, the packaging is damaged, but the shelter itself seems to be intact, that's not, you know, or maybe it's past date or something that they, you know, can't use, you know, I'd, I'd pay you to ship it to me so I could play around with it. So, um, yeah. There we go. There we go. Um, so one last question about the heat injury thing too. And now we've all heard this. Now there's a rumor out there and I don't know if it's medically accurate. So what better a person to answer this question than a doctor, but the susceptibility to heat injury after you've had an initial, uh, heat injury. Now, are you more susceptible to heat injury, subsequent heat injuries, uh, after your first one? Yes. Slash probably slash maybe. So, uh, there's a couple different parts to that. So, um, in the weeks to maybe months after someone has a heat stroke, then they have impaired thermoregulation. And so, so they are more susceptible kind of moving forward. Uh, how long that lasts? You know, there's, there's debate and that probably depends on, you know, how quickly they were cooled, how severely they were injured, things like that. You know, as as I think we can, you know, probably probably there's some understanding of there is inherent risk factors that you might have. Like for instance, there's certain medications that make people more susceptible to heat injury. Both you know things you might take just today because you feel bad, or things you might take every day for some medical problems. So you know, if you're still on that medicine, then that that risk is going to carry forward. If um, you are overweight, then that impairs your ability to, to transfer heat um, out of your body. So that's going to be an enduring risk. There's definitely some period of, of enhanced risk there after a heat stroke. Um, in terms of a heat exhaustion type situation, you know, probably like I'm a person that's fairly heat sensitive, even, you know, when I try to acclimate and things like that. So I think that kind of carries forward. But there's also a fatigability issue here. Like if you were out and took a lot of heat stress yesterday, and now you're going to go out and it's going to be even hotter and there's more fire activity, and you're going to take more heat stress, 
you're much more at risk than somebody who just is showing up well-rested and so forth. Um, there's also uh, decent data that says if you're not you know, well-rested, like you haven't gotten a good solid eight hours of quality sleep, then you're more at, more at risk for, uh, for heat injury, for sure. So, um, so, so yes, um, probably not necessarily a permanent thing, um, but, uh, but, you know, whatever you had before you got heat injured still exists. And then you're, you definitely need to have an appropriate recovery period before you're back out, you know, in the heat stress. You got Good you. question. Yeah, it's a. Yeah. It's a uh, I guess there's some cumulative effects there. It's just like cumulative f- fatigue. Um, yeah, it all just kind of stacks on it on itself uh, eventually. But also, a lot of people out there associate heat with rhabdo, and this is kind of one of those things that are like one of those intersecting topics, I guess you could say. I don't know if that's accurate or not. It could be related. Yeah. So, so there's a couple. There's there's a reason those topics can get conflated or kind of lumped together sometimes mm-hmm. in sort of a not ideal way that promotes great understanding. So, if you have um, a heat stroke, then you will have blood markers of rhabdomyolysis present in your blood in large amounts. And likely you have, in many cases, uh, some degree of muscle damage um, in the setting of a heat stroke. Um, but but it's a you can think of it in that case as a side effect of the heat stroke. Because what's happening in a heat stroke is, and we should probably back up and talk about rhabdo and what it is, you know, kind of and why it happens. But but the side effect of the heat stroke is that is that the muscles are metabolically ramped up and probably depleting some energy supplies. And that leads to increased membrane permeability and cell damage and things like that. And then also, you know, most folks who have a heat stroke will tend to collapse onto the ground. And if you are lying on the ground for a long period of time, then then that will give you rhabdomyolysis from a pressure injury. And then also with that, then, you know, if you, if it's hot enough that, you know, probably a younger, healthy person has collapsed from heat stroke, then, then that probably implies that the ground they fell onto is also quite hot. And then there could be a direct thermal or, or even a burn injury to the, to the muscles at that point. So, so there's kind of a lot of things that are going on that can kind of, you know, kind of make those, those bad actors show up at the same time. But they're they're you know from a from an origin perspective, they're they're not um, they're not the same. They're not coming from the same issue. Okay. Well, since we're on the topic, let's uh, get into the rhabdo thing and uh, kind of yeah, sure, yeah. This is better. yeah. I'm stoked to stoked to talk about this. Okay. So yeah. rhabdomyolysis, fancy way of saying muscle tissue injury and death. Okay. So what happens? So the muscle takes an insult. So could come from one of several things. Could be inflammation or infection. So inflammation is like your immune system is not acting properly and decides to attack the muscles. Uh, infection, you know, most viral illnesses that are going to make a person sick, you know, it, it, I think we've all had a fever and felt muscle aches. That is the virus inflaming your muscles and causing reasonably a low-grade rhabdomyolysis. If you then go out and try to work hard on the fire line, you're asking for problems. We'll come back to that. So that's kind of one thing. You can have a direct injury, i.e., you know, 
a tree fell on my thigh and I have this horrible bruise that goes down to the bone. It's a direct muscle injury. And then the most, you know, kind of where the really where we worry about this the most is the energy depletion inside the muscle. And so all the cells in the body have a gradient of things on the outside of the cell and things on the inside of the cell. To maintain that gradient, you're consuming energy all the time. There's, there's, you know, your, your cells need that. And, you know, when that happens, the cells are not, you know, when that stops happening, the cells aren't alive. And, you know, if that happens to enough of your cells, probably, probably you're not alive. So, um, so if you deplete the energy within your muscle cells so severely that that gradient can't be maintained, then the cells start to fall apart and break down. And the things that are inside the cells come out of the cells and they go into your bloodstream and then they find their way to their kidney, to your kidneys and they begin to damage your kidneys. And then this causes fluid shifts in your body, which put further stress on the kidneys. And then that also causes inflammation kind of generally in the body, which doesn't help the fluid shift problem. And so that's kind of really where we start to really worry about rhabdo, because as we'll talk about coming up, you know, just because you have blood tests that look like rhabdo, sometimes that's not necessarily inherently bad. Um, but with the point where it starts to trash your kidneys, then um, then you're in trouble and you need help. So um, So that's kind of a very basic overview of kind of what we're talking about. And so, so where I think most people get interested in rhabdo from a, you know, a injury on the fire ground perspective, that doesn't involve, you know, a tree fell on me or something like that. Um, uh, or, you know, a training injury, you know, a PT injury or gym injury or things like that is that energy depletion issue. So if you work out hard, uh, excessively hard compared to your prior level of conditioning or your level of nutrition and hydration and things like that, then you can get to a point where you deplete the energy in your muscle cells to the point where they will begin to have that failure of the cell walls. And, and then you're in trouble. Then you've, you've got some degree of rhabdo. Um, and so, so then why does, um, why does this happen? So in terms of the excess exercise issue, um, there's a couple of factors in play. If you're coming into hard exercise, like really aggressive or extreme exercise, um, or even moderate exercise, if you're like a sedentary person, you're totally coming off the couch, then you can get into trouble. And if we look at, you know, some of the cases that have come out of like the lesson learn center and the information like the uh, interagency fire center has put out, um, most of these injuries are happening first day of fire camp or within first three weeks of coming on the job for, for seasonals. And so, um, and that's the same thing we see in cases in, in collegiate sports where we've got a lot of good data. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's that first practice of the season. It's coming back after break. And, you know, the coach wants to set a tone or the, you know, the crew, crew boss wants to show everybody how hardcore this crew is and 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 that's where we can really get into trouble and so um because what happens if you're not trained you know we think about like what are the adaptations that happen in your uh muscles when you work out and get fit well you get more capillaries to deliver energy into the muscle you get better enzyme activity to kind of recycle and and process waste and get more energy ready um, inside the cell and things like that. So if, if we haven't kind of readied that 
muscle or that level of activity, then we can easily overcome its, its ability to regenerate energy itself. And then another thing, and this was, you know, kind of implicated in a lot of like the, um, you know, like, like 10 years ago, you know, CrossFit got a lot of bad, bad rap for, um, for some rhabdo issues. And I think it comes down to a programming decision when you're looking at like making a workout is if you're putting in a lot of eccentric training, that is, that's known to be a higher risk factor. And so what do we mean by eccentric training? So eccentric training is training where we're basically emphasizing the negative phase we're, we're, the, we're lengthening the muscle with resistance. So I, you know, everybody knows, like, I do a curl and I'm concentric because the muscle is getting smaller, but if I still have weight and I'm like trying to do a 10 count with this, then that's eccentric. And, you know, if you do too much of that too soon, if you're not ready for it, that's a good way to give yourself rhabdo. If, if you're doing it dosed correctly, then, um, then that, is a good training method to build muscle and strength and strength endurance, but you, that is an advanced training progression um, as you're trying to get stronger and things like that. And then the other thing to know, as far as in that energy sphere, that, that issue with making sure the cell has enough energy is that when the muscle is contracted strongly, the blood vessels in the muscle get, get kind of smushed down. And so there's not new blood coming into the muscle if, if your, you know, uh, your muscle is contracted. So, you know, if you can imagine like, Oh, you know, Brandon, you and I are going to go do a pull-up contest and, you know, nobody can, can let go and nobody can, uh, um, you know, stop making effort. And we do that for a long time. Well, that's a good way to get rhabdo in your forearms because you're not giving an opportunity for, for new blood and energy to come into the muscle and waste products to leave the muscle. Um, so that's, that's kind of, kind of some of the stuff as far as, you know, training decisions or what we call in sports medicine, like training errors. I've um, definitely made mine. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us, you know, kind of on our fitness journey have wanted to be further along than we, <laughs> than we are. And that that's a, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing free and you've got to put the work in over the time and, and it just, it, it's going to take, it's going to take time. So, Oh yeah. Well, that's another so thing those too. are the big ones. Yeah, for sure. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, that's another thing too, is like that whole, uh, training error and the crew boss, maybe with a little bit too much gusto. Well, that was me at one point, uh, in my fire career. Uh, and it was exactly that pull-ups, very eccentric motions, you know, um, very eccentric exercises. And unfortunately I had to, learn the hard, difficult lesson of what it's like to injure one of my crew members. They, if they're listening to this, they know exactly who they are. I just want to say, I'm so fucking sorry for what happened. I, I, yeah, it was one of those things. And I didn't know if there was some fatigue, they're in shape. They never quit. They never gave a sign of like, I'm not, I'm done. You know, and it was one of those hard lessons that, uh, unfortunately I had to learn for myself. And unfortunately I injured somebody and it's completely accidental, but I, I feel terrible about that. Yeah. I think you, you touched on something important though, is that that person who has that never quit mentality, because that, that, that also, I think is definitely, you know, what I'll just term as like a pathologic level of motivation. Um, and, you know, if, if you can motivate someone at a pathologically high level to exercise, 
that's when people get injured, whether it's rhabdo or, or other types of injuries. Um, you know, other case, there was a, you know, case series of, you know, a cluster of rat, you know, basically like a whole group of ROTC candidates or ROTC students at a given college all got rhabdo because they were given this like really hardcore workout and said, whoever does best at this workout is going to get to pick their job. And whoever doesn't do good, you know, in terms of the military, like, are you going to get, you know, the high speed, cool job that you want, or are you going to get what nobody else wants? And that was going to be determined largely based on their performance on this fitness test. And so that was able to motivate, you know, these um, soon to be young army officers to, to all injure themselves. So, you know, I, I, and, you know, that could come from, you know, an authority figure trying to drive something using physical training as punishment. Um, or maybe it comes from the fire that, Hey, if we don't get over this ridge to the state zone, we're all going to die. So, you know, that that's pretty strong. That's pretty motivating. Right. Oh, but yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's a situation where certainly people can push, uh, and, and in that circumstance, you know, I mean, we can, we can treat rhabdo, you know, much easier than we can treat being burned to death. So, um, so, so, you know, yeah, run away from the fire, but, but at the same time, just understanding that that's a, you know, a high level of motivation. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh one of those high levels of motivation. And that's the thing too, is the never quit mentality. I think a lot of, uh, I guess, tactical athletes, uh, such as fire, uh, police, military, they're just geared that way. It's part of the culture. Yeah. I mean, we see that some, I think, you know, um, we also see, um, you know, folks that aren't as committed to fitness, um, which I'd rather see somebody, you know, going hard than doing nothing at all. But, um, but I think you need to understand that, you know, um, exercise and training is essential to your health, but like anything else, drugs, food, exercise needs to be dosed appropriately to, to, you know, to provide health benefits and not injure you. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely got to titrate that one to effect. And yeah, like I said, yeah, for sure. the hard way, but so Rando sure. is, is one of those, it's not necessarily nebulous, but the signs and symptoms, I guess of it are a little bit because the person that my only encounter with, with this subject is the person was, they, they looked like they were physically ill with like, food poisoning. That's what, that's what yeah, it looked sure. like. So what are some signs and symptoms to watch out for? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and as you've kind of touched on, there's no perfect constellation of symptoms. So I think it's, it requires a little bit of self-awareness to see, you know, Hey, this is, this is beyond something I've routinely experienced. Um, so what are some things, you know, if your urine is changing abnormally, like, you know, looks like Coca-Cola or looks abnormally dark, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. It's time to go to the hospital. Um, and, and if that happens just once, but then your next urination looks okay, you still need to go to the hospital because myoglobin is actually pretty transient in your blood. And so, um, you're, you're still, you know, just cause it's like, Oh, I peed again. That looks better. Eh, I, I, you need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, disproportionate soreness, uh, you know, to the point where like you, you're, you know, it's waking you up. Um, you know, I think if, you know, that'd probably be a good one to, to seek care over. If, if any of your muscles or a group of muscles were to lose function or power, like your 
half as strong as you usually are, or maybe less, or you can't, you know, you literally can't use that. Like I can't rip a coffee cup because my, my forearms are so, you know, overtaxed, then that's, um, that's, that's probably a pretty good one. You know, tense, palpable, uncomfortable swelling in any group of muscles. Um, if your kidneys start to hurt, you know, on your back at the behind your, your ribs there, um, if those are actually painful, um, uh, you know, somebody who's just generally ill that, you know, maybe they went hard on the fire line, whatever, you know, looking bad, uh, maybe they're puking, maybe they have diarrhea, you know, that person needs to be medically evaluated. Maybe it's rhabdo, maybe it's something totally unrelated, but, uh, but I mean, what you're describing, you know, that, that person needs to be looked at and, you know, certainly anybody that has volume depletion, like they're, they can't keep fluids down, you know, or they can't keep up with their diarrhea, things like that. I mean, now what might be a mild situation that your body could totally just get over really quick is now going to become something where your kidneys are going to be really taking a bad hit because you don't have the fluids in your body to, to manage it. So, yeah. So those are, those are kind of the ones I would, I would look out for. Gotcha. And now what about diagnosis? So we talked about signs and symptoms. What about the actual uh, methodology, I guess, if you will, uh, to diagnose? Yeah, this is, this is where it gets, it gets murky for us as the clinicians um, on the hospital side. And I, I, this is something where, you know, having the additional training in sports medicine, I feel like really advantaged over some of my colleagues in the emergency department. Um, Cause you, it helps you contextualize this a little bit. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, there's a, you know, there's papers where they looked at blood test. Well, let me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So, okay. You go into the hospital and you say, you know, my muscles don't work and they hurt really bad. And my pee is discolored. I think I have rhabdo. Okay, great. So we're going to do a blood test called CK or creatine kinase, which is an enzyme that's in a lot of body tissues. It's mostly in muscle. So, you know, if your muscles are damaged and their interior contents are leaking out, then we will see large quantities of this in your blood. This is where things get a little weird. So depending on who you, who's, you know, medical research, medical paper, medical opinion you need, and the diagnosis of rhabdo is established if your CK level is one and a half times the normal, two times the normal, five times the normal, greater than 10,000, greater than 20,000, or greater than 50,000. Um, so, so there is not wide consensus in the medical community over what is, at what level of CK do you have rhabdo? Because there's always a little bit of CK in your blood all the time in normal, healthy people. Yeah. That's, that's normal. Um, it's a, it's a natural enzyme that's just in your body. So, so then you're kind of left with, you know, well, what do we, what do we do with this? And so to contextualize that in the sports medicine world, folks that have finished a marathon or an ultra, an ultra marathon might have that are well, you know, they're happy. They don't feel bad. They're celebrating that they finished their big race. They've been training for might have CK levels of 30,000. If you come into a clinic or an ER off the fire line and say, I feel bad and have a CK of 30,000, um, any doctor in their right mind is going to admit you to the hospital for IV fluids. So it's, it's, it, there's kind of a, an issue of context there. 
And, you know, and maybe that, maybe we're being more conservative than we have to be, but, you know, wouldn't you rather just deal with a night in the hospital than a lifetime of dialysis? Um, so that's that, and that's kind of what we have to weigh. And so, um, so you've got to look at, you know, and then if you're trying to make a decision, you know, if I'm trying to make a decision clinically, you know, I might consider, you know, is this person able to drink here in the ER? They're pounding beverages. They're able to hydrate on their own, or they have a queasy stomach and I'm worried about their ability to hydrate, you know, without an IV. Um, um, you know, do they have some sign of, of kidney injury or other, or, you know, other medical issues happening, um, on, on their blood tests, you know, then that gives us a much lower threshold to admit that person to the hospital. Um, you know, and, and so I think particularly if clinicians aren't well versed in this area, then, then I think a lot of folks might be conservative, um, but that's okay. That that's okay. And so, um, you know, um, yeah. So there's definitely. So I guess to summarize, there's not a hundred percent consensus on on what the threshold is um, to to really be concerned. Okay. So there's not really a, a like you said a threshold to diagnose one hundred percent rhabdo. It's kind of a a moving target, if you will. Yes and Ish. no, but I think Ish. I think you could say like you know if you had muscle pain and uh, a CK greater than fifty thousand, that was the highest recommended standard in a paper I saw. So that means that all the other people that said, well, it's only twice normal or ten thousand or twenty thousand, well, they're all in agreement. So I think just the higher that number goes, the you know what's that like nine out of ten doctors agree, right? So um, so the higher that number goes, the more and more clinicians are going to be concerned. Um, and, and then recognizing that, that, that CK number probably won't peak until about 72 hours post-injury. So even though you're, you're low, you know, the night after your, you know, hard day of work, then it's still, it's not unreasonable to, to be conservative in the first 24 hours, because to some extent you might not know what's going to happen. I gotcha. Now, how often do you yeah. think this uh, condition goes unrecognized? Because I've seen a lot of folks out there just kind of like, oh, I'm just abnormally sore. I, I It's nothing. I'll just brush it off. I, I think that rhabdo happens more often, whether it be a low or a medium grade of uh, rhabdomyolysis. I think it happens more often than we give ourselves uh, credit to finding out. So I, I, what's your thoughts on that? And you're, you're probably right. I mean, you know, I don't have data to kind of answer your question with any degree of authority, but I think that makes sense. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, if somebody is reasonable and self-aware and they, you know, can't use their arms, then I think at that point, you know, I would hope most reasonable people would seek some medical care, you know, regardless of what, what the cause of that was. Um, and there, there is, you know, if, if, you know, I go run a mile at a light jog pace down the street and come back, I'll have some mild elevation in my CK most likely. But the question is, is, you know, the, the real question is when does that become meaningful? And everybody's different too. Yeah, for sure. And so, and so that, that becomes kind of a conundrum, but I think again, you know, if you want to look at your long-term 
life and health and enjoyment and things like that, you know, um, maybe you can get through it, but your kidneys took a 10% hit. Well, that's going to show up in your blood pressure five years down the road. That's going to show up in your stroke risk and your heart attack risk and things like that. So, so, and, you know, to talk about, and this is something I kind of have some strong feelings about because, so one of my other jobs is I do annual physicals for several um, uh, fire departments here in Southwest Colorado um, with a company out in Nevada called 1582. And we do, um, we help small and mid-sized departments around the West with, with annual medical screenings for their firefighters. And so, you know, as you start to study health among firefighters, anybody that works in emergency services has higher risks of cardiovascular disease than people of similar age and other occupations, higher risk of cancer, higher risk of lung disease. And firefighters are worse, you know, worse than police, worse than uh, EMS workers, just because of all the garbage you have to breathe on the fire ground. And so, so I think, you know, this tough guy attitude of I'm going to blow this off and truck on is, is not serving us well. And if you want to have success and longevity in your career and be able to perform on the fire ground and then get to a point where you can enjoy the retirement that you learn, like you, you have to invest in your health and not be a knucklehead about this. stuff. So, um, so, you know, it's tough. And, you know, I mean, to, you know, I can't tell you like, you know, exactly what's what, but I would say, I wish people would have a lower threshold to take care of their health um, in emergency services um, is kind of, kind of where I net out with that. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense because we're a very work hard, play hard kind of culture. And every time you do that, which is pretty much every day, just shaves a little bit of time off the uh, your life and the quality of life that you're going to have later down the road. I mean, shit, if you look at it, most uh, firefighters, wildland firefighters that do a full career, a vast majority of them uh, have some sort of cardiovascular, some sort of uh, lung issue, or they just have a massive MI uh, five years after they retire. I mean, it, it sucks. But it's yeah. also... Yeah. You're and, kind of, and, you know, if maybe we can change the culture a little bit and, you know, in, invest in your health because um, it's worth it and you're worth it, you know, then, then maybe we can change that kind of moving forward. I'd, I'd like to hope. Oh yeah. That's but, I, you know, I think we've, we've all, you know, kind of seen and heard that or even folks, you know, that are still on the job that don't even make it to retirement. And, you know, it's sad to see. It is. It is sad to see. And that's the thing is like, we need to change that culture. And that's, you know, a, the root of any good public health program is baseline education. You know, think about the future, uh, not in the moment so much. I mean, you still got to think about it in the moment, of course, but you know, think about the future, think about what you're doing to your body and take the proper steps to mitigate some of these risk factors. hundred percent. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So sorry. Got down a rabbit hole there. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. No, I mean, but it's a, you know, I, I don't know. It's one I, I get excited to soapbox about. No, so, I mean, soapbox you, away. You've man. got, you've, you've got my, you've got several, you know, we've hit like, you know, three of my like things that get the vein to pop up in my forehead topics, you know, heat stroke, rhabdo, <laughs> firefighter wellness. Like, yeah, we're, we're making the rounds here. So oh, it's yeah. good. 
So back to the rhabdo thing. Now, as far as treatment goes, uh, what is like the most effective treatment that's out there for rhabdo? Is it just fluids like you were saying? I've intravenous fluids. Yeah, for sure. So, so standard of care is basically just uh, aggressive hydration to um, like in terms of what what we're going to do and you know medical unit, hospital, whatever is uh, is fluids. So you need to basically flush that garbage out of the kidneys. Um, so before that happens you know, recognizing that you're overtaxed and, and kind of throttling back or stopping work, hydrate, eat, get cooled off, whatever, kind of, you know, that's, that's probably your initial thing before you come to see me. And then, yeah, I mean, at the point where you get into, you know, the advanced care arena, um, fluids are kind of the mainstay. There are different people that have advocated for, you know, different additives we can put in the IV fluid, um, that might, help to different things. None of that's really been well studied. So nobody really can advocate it for, you know, I, I can't say it's bad. I can't say, or, or it's good. It's just, there's not really, it hasn't been looked at enough to say that it's a supported practice. There is some expert opinion that, you know, and this is probably directly applicable for, for any of the ALS providers that are listening. Um, but, um, there is probably some expert opinion that we should be using like, you know, okay, you're a fireline paramedic, fireline EMT, you're confronted with someone you think has rhabdo. We should probably be using LR on these people, not normal saline. And that's because the LR is balanced and isn't going to, it's, 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 it's not going to promote so much acidosis into the kidney, which is, which is at an acidotic state in the kidney is probably a lot of our problem. So, you know, if you, if you don't have a choice, then, you know, and they're not orally hydrating and, you know, they're presenting as fluid depleted, then, you know, NS is, is probably preferable to nothing. And certainly we use that has been used for quite a while, but if you have the option, um, I would choose LR for that patient. Um, and, and then, you know, also on the ALS side, you know, you'd probably be, uh, you know, well, sir, grab the 12 lead. You're looking for, um, hyperkalemia stigma there, not, not ischemic stuff, but hyperkalemic stuff. Um, um, and then that's, that's basically it is to move them on to the hospital. We can trend some CKs. We can make sure that urine output is good and their, um, their kidneys are doing okay. And if they're not, then, then, you know, it's a temporary dialysis situation. They get the junk out of the blood and then that will hopefully allow the, you know, if, if that's done in time, that person can recover, you know, their renal function. But, um, you know, there, there is, you know, and again, we don't really know these numbers, you know, and I, it's diff probably different for everybody, but there is a tipping point between, you know, uh, at some point there's so much garbage in your blood and the kidneys are so, you know, irritated by this, that they're going to kind of shut down. And then that's where really, you know, you're, you're going to either be on dialysis for the rest of your life or you're going to die if, if you're not getting intervention. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's not, it's not some magic wazoo thing that we have. It's mostly just hydrating and protecting the kidneys. You know, the dialysis thing is pretty wazoo. Um, you know, in terms of we have oh, this machine that replaces your organs, but, um, um, but you know, most of the, the overwhelming majority of cases, hydration takes care of it. But, you know, at the point where you're pushing a lot of fluids, you really need to be in the hospital because you got to make sure we're not like washing out your other electrolytes and things like that. So, yup. I gotcha. Yeah. So no Treatment pasta water, better. huh? No pasta water. Just uh, go straight for the lactated ringers. 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, so, I, you know, LR is still in that pasta water category for trauma. So, you know, yeah. it, like crystalloids are, are not happy in trauma anymore. And, you know, I think we've, they probably never, well, really they never were, but you know, it's one of those things that took us a few years to, to A, figure out and then B, let go of our old, old leaching ways. So, wow. um, um, yeah, but but you know, LR being balanced is is the way to go for for this patient. Copy that, and hopefully versus somebody, the guy who got smashed or girl who got completely smashed by the giant tree who has a crushed pelvis and stuff. Like they don't need crystalloids; they need evacuation, blood, and surgery. So yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's pretty uh pretty wild the uh, new advancements that we've had as far as like protocols, I guess you could say, like uh, getting away from the pasta water and just diluting <laughs> what's already in the container. But yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's interesting yeah. to see. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, as we start to get a next, you know, because most of our technology now is, you know, patch or sew up the holes, give blood, and then the body heals itself. But I think as we get into, you know, another 10 to 20 years down the road, when we have actual you know, biologics that can, that can, you know, fill a wound cavity or things like that. I mean, there's, um, um, that'll be interesting to see where it goes, but yeah. Yeah. No, we've, we've come a long way. I mean, I just, you know, yeah. can remember just, you know, when I was a paramedic, like, Oh yeah, I give everybody IV fluids. Like, you know, we didn't, we didn't help anybody. We were still doing that when I was an intern and Oh God, I mean, I won't, you know, this isn't a medical focused podcast, like with the audience. So I won't, I'll spare you all the details, but like some of the complications of the, the, just the aggressive IV fluid, you know, without an emphasis on blood products were just dreadful. I mean, just dreadful. Like, yeah, it, it was rough stuff to see. So yeah, just people like swollen up and uh, yeah. Not so good. It's like you pump too much fluids in them, and now all of a sudden you have to give them Lasix to get the fluids out of them, and then find a balance. Even in you know, them. just and and even you know, you can't even do that because they're still inflamed and in a shock state, and you know, so they just they're just horribly swollen or having other complications, and it just yeah. I mean, I'm I'm glad we've moved past that era because it was. We, we weren't doing anybody any favors. No, so, the automatic yeah. thousand mil bolus of IV fluids is that's definitely a thing in the past. Oh, and uh, you, you thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Niche, niche. <laughs> <laughs> Two lines. <laughs> Give them the 16s. <laughs> Two bags. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. So, oh, yeah. No good. No so good. now what about prevention of rhabdo? We've talked a lot about the signs, symptoms, the treatment. Yeah. Uh, what about prevention? Yeah, for sure. This so, seems like something that's. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple things. So, um, and, and this kind of ties back to some other risk factors we haven't talked about. So if there are certain medications like that people take for cholesterol or some kind of heavier duty mental health medicines that put people at risk. So if you're on that sort of thing, you know, talk to your doctor, you should know about that and kind of see if maybe can we switch gears to like another medicine, something like that. Um, if, uh, alcohol is, on some level toxic to muscles. And so, and that, that effect probably lasts more than a few days. Like it might last as long as a week. So, you know, hard partying before hard work on the fire, like save that for after the hard work. Right. Cause, um, cause that is an additional risk factor. Um, 
And then, you know, if you're sick, like if you're already ill under the weather, things like that, like you're, yeah, you're much at risk. Um, so, so what else can you do to prevent it? You know, we can steer clear of that stuff. Um, the best thing is just to be conditioned, you know, to be appropriately physically conditioned when you show up for work or when you show up for an assignment or things like that and avoiding, as we've already talked about that pathological motivation, um, you can't hydrate your way out of not getting rhabdo, but if you're significantly dehydrated, then you're at more risk. Because you you know you're not going to have as much fluid in your blood to drive the you know drive nutrients in your muscles and bring the waste out and things like that. So so you you know there's no benefit to overhydrating, but being dehydrating is no good. Um, there was a case series that came out of college sports where they looked at a bunch of student athletes that got rhabdo after practice, and they noticed a trend where the athletes that had a protein smoothie after the workout were less likely to have rhabdo. That does not mean that a protein smoothie will reduce your risk of rhabdo. It might mean that the people that weren't going to get rhabdo were well enough to drink a shake and the people that were going to get rhabdo were too nauseous to have a shake. We don't know, but you know, certainly in the long term, keeping your nutrition up is good for your health and probably would prevent that or reduce that kind of injury. Okay. So yeah, majority of it is but just being mostly, healthy and self-aware. For sure. And just, just being appropriately conditioned and fit for the training loads and the workloads you're going to put on your body. Okay. Well, there you go. Ladies and gentlemen, definitely avoid the damn alcohol. <laughs> You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating a teetotal position, but again, if you know you're going to go out and have to work really, really hard, then then alcohol is not helping your preparation for that, oh, yeah. nor is it helping your training. So, you know, just just be an adult and make make adult decisions. Yeah, no, that's a thing. That's a, there's a personal responsibility into you know doing this job. Uh, you know, act appropriately. Yeah. Well, damn, that's a, that's a big, uh, breakdown of the rhabdo and the heat injury illness, uh, realm. I love it, man. That was awesome. But you, you kind of curveball me with the heat illness thing. Cause uh, I'm sorry. You know, I, fortunately that's something I know something about. So, you know, it's kind of front and center here, right here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to curveball you, but I was like, I thought, I thought it would be like a good segue to, yeah, differentiate for sure. between for the sure. two because they're not necessarily, uh, I guess, related. They can be, but not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Gotcha. For sure. So, one more question I wanted to ask you before uh, you get out of here is: I wanted to talk to you about your uh, your magazine, the article you wrote for Wilderness Medicine Magazine, and the concussion for a uh, concussion review for the wilderness. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, this is another thing where, you know, just that intersection between emergency and sports and longer term care and prevention and, you know, the emergency. Just, I don't know, stuff I really like. And where I did my sports medicine fellowship at UF Go Gators, um, it, you know, super, you know, one of the things I think we were, you know, we were strong in a lot of things. It was a great program, but I, I think we really had 
a strong concussion program in terms of the education and the care we were providing folks um, at the program. So it's it's an area of interest and it's it's um it's something that a lot of like even as an emergency physician before I kind of decided I wanted to take my career in the sports medicine direction and incorporate that into it. Um, it's just not something that even as a physician, you really have a lot of knowledge on. And so, you know, as a, as an emergency physician, you're very well trained in how to resuscitate people with, with critical brain injuries and, and protect their brain and, you know, keep them alive and move them on to neurocritical or neurosurgical care and things like that. But as far as like, what do we do with these people who, Oh, you hit your head, you feel bad, you look bad, but you're not, you know, you're not at the point where we need, you know, a breathing tube and a CAT scanner and all this kind of stuff and trying to figure out like, what do we do with those people and stuff like that? That's where I think there's, there's some huge opportunities um, for everybody in EMS, I think, um, around the concussion space. So, um, so yeah, so, um, yeah, it's another, it's another topic I get. Man, you're, you're like hitting all my like excitement topics tonight. So this is awesome. You got some passion, man. Uh, yeah. So, all right. So what, so yeah. So, um, I actually have two friends that are involved with, the, um, the WMS magazine, Dr. Hawkins, Dr. Seth Hawkins, who is the, the main editor, and then um, my buddy Mark Cassone, who I actually work with at, in my ER, and so he's he's one of the other editors and and so forth. So they had, uh, I guess, Mark had hit me up about maybe doing an article on concussion, and so so yeah, and it's it's a great topic. It was a well received article. So I don't know what it, what what can I tell you about the article or concussion or what are, what are we. Oh, just some uh, things that are in the uh, that are in the article that we can apply to the uh, wildfire realm. Like, uh, say, someone gets sp- smacked in the head with a rock or a tree limb or something like that. Some of the takeaways from your article would probably be beneficial to yeah, uh, for the folks. For sure. Me. Okay. So, so the first thing, you know, just like anything else, right? Okay. The first thing is like, is this safe? Are we going to be burned over? Is like more things falling? you know, do we just need to get the hell out of here? Okay. So let's say we've checked that box. Then next thing is, you know, okay. Is there like huge open brain injury, bleeding, horribleness, airway, you know, okay. We've checked that box. You know, the person's like awake, they're not bleeding, you know, they're holding their head. They're kind of a little glassy eyed and they look a little unsteady on their feet. And so our ABCs are seen safe. You know, we've kind of run the box there. So now the next thing is like, we need to evaluate that person and we're looking for red flags of structural brain injuries. So, so things like a major trauma mechanism, like they fell off a cliff or, you know, like the whole giant tree fell on them or, you know, whatever. I think we all can kind of imagine what that is. So, so then other evidence of structural brain injury, someone who's getting worse with time, someone who is having persistent vomiting, um, hopefully we don't have any elderly or small children out on the fire line um, or people that are systemically anticoagulated, although maybe maybe we do. So somebody who is on blood thinners, um, I'm going to kind of hit the hit the alert button on that pretty soon. Um, and so those are, you know, some of the ones we hit on in the article and things like that. Um, if you find physical exam evidence that, you know, either you can feel like a crack in their skull or you can see like the battle sign or the raccoon eyes or things like that, you know, evidence of a skull fracture or things like that. So, 
those would all be kind of in your red flags for structural brain injury category. If you have that, then, then you have to kind of think like, Oh, this person could have a brain in like a, like a bleeding inside their skull that could get worse with time. And, you know, now it's time to do things like call a helicopter and go to the hospital really quickly and things like that. And, you know, hopefully your med unit has done stuff like figure out like what hospital has neurosurgical capability versus which one doesn't and things like that. And, you know, for somebody who's really kind of presenting, you know, with a big head injury, then probably you want to just go back to the neurosurgical shop. Okay. So now we've ruled that out. And now we've kind of said, Hey, there, we don't think this person has a structural brain injury, but, but we still have some, some concerns. So you can ask the person about symptoms of concussion. Like, do you have a headache? Do you feel nauseous? Does your neck hurt? Do you feel kind of blurry vision? Do lights and noise bother you? Do you feel foggy or slowed down? All those are, are concussion symptoms. Um, just as we've already kind of touched on, some people, and in my experience, particularly concussed, acutely concussed patients, will um, not want to be very forthcoming about their symptoms and they'll want to tough it out. And so, um, so that's where kind of observing the patient. And so, um, so observing them and see, you know, can they not focus? Are they unusually irritable? Um, are they kind of sitting there holding their head going, no, I'm, I'm good, bro. Like clear, clearly not. Right. Okay. So, um, so observing the patient that can give us maybe some objective evidence. And so, um, so that, that could be really helpful. And if those, you know, if you find problems in any of those and somebody who just had a, a deceleration mechanism or a head injury or things like that, then, then that's a concussion. Okay. That's, that's what it is. That's why the person feels bad is we injured their brain. And so, um, um, and I should, I should also take this opportunity to say, you don't have to hit your head to have a concussion. If you're say riding in a vehicle that suddenly has like a stop start type thing or things like that, then you can jostle your brain and around in the skull enough to give yourself or to get, to get a concussion. Okay. So, um, so at the point where we've, we've ruled out the red flags, they don't look bad. You know, they're not holding their head. They don't look glassy eyed. They say they feel good. They're denying the headache, the cognitive symptoms, things like that, then you can function test their brain. And so that sounds really complicated, doesn't it? It's not. You're using your brain right now. So you make them use their brain. And so you can do simple things like read this work assignment or, uh, you know, I'm going to say five, 175, you're going to say 571. And we'll go back and forth with a few, few of those. Or you can have somebody do a simple task that should be fairly easy for them. Like, um, you know, go to a different talk group and channel on your, you know, uh, on your radio. Or, you know, can you show me where we are on this map? Things like, or, you know, can you, you know, call your spouse on the phone? What Something simple that this person should be able to do. And if they struggle to do these simple things like they can't dial their phone or they have to like squint and they're like, they, you can tell they're like, they're like rubbing their head mm -hmm. because the activity, the, the additional cognitive load is straining their brain and provoking their symptoms. Then again, boom, you've, you've just established that they have concussion. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, how I approach it is you've got kind of your red flags, then you've got your kind of your symptoms and your overall appearance. And then if all that looks good, you can proceed with your function test. And then if the function test all looks good, they feel good, they look good, 
then you want to keep an eye on them because they might present with some symptoms, you know, a few hours tomorrow morning, whatever, you know, but, um, and then the point where you've established someone has a concussion or you s- suspect that they have a concussion, that person needs to be removed from the fire line. People that have concussion have measurable deficits in their ability to visually track. They have problems with balance. They have problems with impulsivity and they have problems with judgment. And, um, and so, so, you know, you can imagine that if you're impaired in that way from a brain injury, this is not someone you want to be in difficult and dynamic terrain with. Um, and so, so you got to get that person off the fire line. And, and, and not only are you preserving your own safety and the safety of others in that way, but also you're promoting their recovery and their, you know, their, ability to, you know, work later in the season and things like that. Most, at least in the sports arena, you know, if if a giant boulder, you know, smashes you on your head, hopefully you have a helmet, but, um, you know, we get into like a little bit of a different realm, but in the sports world, 80, 80% of these folks are going to be good by the two week mark often sooner um, if they're managed appropriately. So we know, um, and we were one of the sites for this study, it was out of a, a DOD grant that was done with a lot of the SEC schools, but we know that concussed folks that stay in the game, even if they don't have another injury, their recovery is longer and their symptoms are more severe. So if we can arrest them for the rest of the day of the injury, then um, they're the remainder of the day of the injury, then their recovery will be quicker and their symptoms will be less severe. Um, and then that kind of segues into this idea of like a second impact syndrome or like, you know, that kind of concern. Um, there are a few cases out there of people that got a second quote minor head injury and then went on to have like much more severe symptoms. We would see that in concussion clinic, not like people dying or ending up in the hospital, but just people that have much worse concussive symptoms and a more prolonged recovery with a second injury. Um, But again, you don't have to get a second injury to get a prolonged recovery, even just like more exertion, more work, being out in that, you know, high cognitive demand environment that's going to prolong your, your recovery. So it's a super, super interesting um, topic. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of a quick overview on concussion. And then can I, can I, can I egregiously self-promote? Something? Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So, so if you would like to learn more about concussion and earn continuing education credits approved by the state of Colorado, um, myself and several friends have an education company called base medical. And, uh, and so we mostly focus on, uh, wilderness first aid and wilderness first responder stuff, but we have a growing number, not a great number, but a growing number of, um, of, uh, of standalone continuing ed modules for EMTs and paramedics. And we have one on our website, uh, called brain injury from the sidelines to the summits, um, which, which basically goes in much more depth of what we've just talked about. And you get, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour of, of con ed that, you know, it's, it's state approved. So registry will take it. And, uh, yeah. And, um, I, I, uh, go on and on about this topic for a little bit longer. So, uh, so yeah, if you need an hour of con ed and you want to learn more about the concussion, check that out. So, yeah. Nice. Well, cool. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, definitely going to put some links in the show notes about that and see if, uh, anybody in the state okay. of Colorado. Yeah, I can say some stuff. Yeah. yeah. If anybody in the state of Colorado definitely needs, uh, some, 
some continuing education credits. Well, that'd be an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, you know, you can map that into that like TV. Yeah, there's a couple NREMT core content areas you could map that into. So um, you know, yeah. Anyway, so check it out if you need an hour con ed. My voice doesn't sound like you know nails on a chalkboard. Either, so. <laughs> You're good, man. You're right. good. So, so speaking awesome. of that, where else can we find you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's see. So, yeah. So, um, base medical. Yeah, if you're looking for um, wilderness first aid, first responder training, maybe a little con ed. We also have um, for anybody that does search and rescue stuff. We have a bunch of training for that on the website too, which um, which is I'm pretty stoked about. I put a lot of that together. And then uh, I'm on Instagram. So I am Colorado underscore rescue underscore doc. So Colorado rescue doc on Instagram. Um, and then what else? Um, yeah, I guess those are kind of the, the big things. Yeah. The two primaries. Yeah. No Twitter, yeah, no face, yeah, for sure. face page or Facebook. I don't, got yeah, MySpace? I don't, I, I just, there's two, Twitter's too crazy. I can't, I can't handle that. I can't it's do too it either. Much. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, the the links to a lot of that stuff, the article and the con ed and all that stuff, there's there's a link tree on my um, Instagram. So it's it's easy to find all that stuff. But yeah, I'll give you some links for the show notes too. So it'll be there. So sure. yeah, awesome. Um, sure. Cool. Yeah, well, coming to the end of the show, I was uh, like to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie, a hero, mentor. Could be several. Take it away, man. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so first people, uh, going way back to when I was a volunteer paramedic in Maryland on a, uh, Chris Tuzo and Todd Dolan were my paramedic preceptors. And like, they gave me a foundation in how to take care of sick people and kind of get ahead of people's physiology that I've carried forward my whole career. So, uh, Chris, Todd, if you're out there, thanks guys. Um, Next person I want to give a shout out to is Justin Spain. So Justin and I did volunteer mountain rescue together in Albuquerque. And Justin was uh, an incredibly kind mentor and taught me like basically the foundations of everything I know about rope rescue and things like that. Um, and so he's, he's a super solid guy and I think he's a lieutenant or a captain in Albuquerque fire now. And yeah, super, super solid guy, great teacher. Um, and so, uh, so that's great. And then the whole crew at university of Florida sports medicine, um, go Gators chomp, chomp and, uh, miss everybody down there. But that was, that fellowship was just awesome and, uh, really learned a lot. And then I want to give a shout out to, uh, Chris Ives, who's my, um, EMS coordinator on the San Juan, on the San Juan hotshots and dude. Mike Fitchum, who is, um, 80 paramedic on the San Juan who, um, like I, I'd be just lost without Mike's help. And so, um, so just, just some great folks I get to work with on the San Juan. So, uh, yeah, that's what I got. Nice, man. Yeah. I know Chris, uh, Chris is good dude. He's actually been on the show. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Small I didn't know that. All right. Well, I'm going to have to dig that up. So that, yeah, he, and, uh, uh, he goes yeah. down to Mexico to go, uh, train some of the, uh, the, the wildland firefighters down there. Basically it's pretty awesome what he does in the off season. That's amazing. Okay. I'll have to talk to him more about that. Yeah. I think they're all deployed up in Montana right now for, um, a lot of the, 
ongoing festivities. So um, a lot of them. Yeah. That's for sure. They've had a busy season for sure. Thankfully not, not in my backyard, but um, well, they've had, they've had a lot of lightning starts around here, but thankfully nothing that went like crazy big. Yeah. Nothing like the 416 fire a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the missionary Ridge before that. Yeah. The, um, I mean, we're still dealing with mudslides from 416 and I mean, that's, that's left quite a scar, but yeah, I mean, that was a lot of the, just seeing the impact of that and kind of wanting to be, you know, a contributing member of the community. And that was, that was a lot of the reason where I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to get plugged in with the forest service and be able to contribute. And, you know, um, you know, I think my wife and I are going to live here for a number of years more, and I don't think that's our last big wildfire. So I'd like to like to be able to contribute where I could. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Durango's a hell of a town. And uh, yeah, thank you for doing what you're doing. I mean, this is important work and we definitely need to expand our uh, medical program and uh, have the tools of the trade to get the job done right, especially out there in the middle of nowhere where it's very austere and very remote. And typically no one's really coming for you unless you're lucky. Sure. Yeah. Very real. Very oh yeah. Real. It's real, real stuff. So once again, Dr. Durkin, really appreciate you yeah. being on the show. Brandon, man. Thank you. Super, super fun. Yeah. Had a blast. Well, hopefully we'll get you back on here soon. Talk some more, more medicine, medical nerdum. <laughs> I'm in. I'm way in. Right on. Well, take care, man. We'll see you on the next one. Have a great night. See ya. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with Doc Durkin. Dude, that was an awesome episode. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. This is the first time we've had a... uh, yeah, well, I mean, we've had several doctors on the show, but I guess from the related field that you're in, the emergency kind of thing. And it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, we definitely learned a lot about heat injuries, uh, what you actually do for the interagency EMS program, as far as the medical director kind of thing. It's pretty awesome. And we also talked and covered a lot of subjects about rhabdo, the all elusive rhabdo. Yeah. So, Dr. Erkin. Thank you so much for being on the show, man, and uh, sharing your subject matter expertise. I definitely enjoyed it, and I hope we get you uh, back on the show again. And uh, yeah, you also had a uh, a uh, publication in the Wilderness Medicine Magazine, and it's about concussions in the wilderness. So if you guys want to read that, I'll uh, drop some links in the show notes. But once again, man, thank you for being on the show. As for the rest of you, stay safe out there. And like I said uh, on the intro of this uh, show, definitely take some time and uh, make some appointments if you can. And that way you can establish that rapport with your clinician. So stay safe out there, folks. Have a good one. Special shout out to our sponsors. We got Mystery Ranch. They make, obviously, the best damn packs in the game. So go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out for all of your load-bearing essentials. Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. We've got Hotshot Brewery, purveyors of the most kick-ass coffee for the most kick-ass cause. They uh, actually donate a portion, a rather rather sizable portion of their proceeds to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. So go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full selection. We've got the ass movement. 
the very best in poo burying propaganda. Go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. And uh, yeah, enter that code anchor point ass 10 for 10% off your entire purchase. And last but not least, we have the Smoky Generation. Bethany, you have a kick ass organization. And I love the stories that are coming out of the uh, field from you folks in the field. It's pretty cool. It's epic. As for the rest of you, you guys and girls know the game. Have fun. Be safe. Stay savage. Peace.